This is a test of the emergency podcast system. Activated by contract termination. Rumors of our demise are greatly exaggerated. Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. She's blessed to be a Bible reading, gun toting, Air Force veteran, wife, and mom, righteously American. Here I am. <laughs> so apparently, if I leave this computer alone for a few days to go out of town, it gets a little temperamental. Honestly, I have no idea what's wrong with it, but I'm here and super happy to be with you because what a what am I'm what an amazing time. What an amazing time. So first of all, where was I? Well, if you were watching on Facebook, you saw that we did a live stream. I I actually started it at the beginning of the conference yesterday. We were at the National Press Club in Washington D.C. and we were doing a conference for the Bring Our Troops Home. It's a movement uh, and and an amazing group of people uh, who are veterans, some of them officers, some of them enlisted from all of our armed forces and even reservists. They've come together and they are absolutely determined to make sure that we start to get more legislators to support what our own president is doing. So President Trump has already said he wants to bring troops home. Back when he was a candidate, he started in on this. And he's not he's not relented. He truly believes that if we don't have a congressional authorization, we shouldn't have troops there. He also believes that if there's a reason for us to be there and there's a clear mission and we can delineate that, we can strategize it and we can have tactics to support it, fine, let's be there. Let's get a congressional authorization and do it. But... If we don't have that, then what are we doing there? So I I was surprised by how many things, wonderful things were said at the conference and how tragic some of it was. Specifically, the utter tragedy of what's happening with our veterans, those who are suffering from PTSD, the 22 suicides a day. We really boil it down to numbers and statistics and we kind of forget that these are real people and that they're suffering and that it's not just them. A lot of the discussion surrounding the veterans leaves off and does not take into consideration that these men have wives, they have, uh, you know, children, a lot of them children that they have not really spent much time raising because the reality is huge portions of these guys are going on deployments and women, they're going on deployment after deployment after deployment. A huge segment of our military active duty right now have been on five deployments or more. Remember, each deployment to the Middle East is 12 months. So we're talking about five years of your life spent in the Middle East in 115 degree temps with sand blowing in your face. When we were on our way over there, there was a young woman sitting adjacent to me on the, they, they had a charter bus for us to take us from the hotel to the actual National Press Club. And she said, um, she was listening to some people complain. She said it was an example of how when you've been to the Middle East and spent a lot of time there in combat, when you come back to the United States, the complaints that we regular people have are not only comical, they're almost insulting. She said, a lady said, oh, you know, it's so hot. It was like 90 degrees wherever wherever they were. And she said, it's so hot. I think I could just die. And she said, was it hot like this in the Middle East? 
And the veteran who was sitting just adjacent to me, she said, I said, no, this is nothing like the Middle East. And the lady said, oh, really? How so? And she said, if you want to experience what it's like being in the Middle East during the summer, you should go to your oven and turn it on 500 degrees. Then get a bag of sand, lay it out on your counter and put a fan behind it. So you've got 500 degree temps blowing in your face and a, and the breeze that blows by is, is, is full of sand. And she said, then you'll kind of know what it feels like to be in the Middle East in the summer. Just imagine that month after month after month of that. And you're not just there. It's not like you're there and you're like, well, let me go inside and cool myself off. You're, you're there for, you know, military readiness. You're, you're actually performing a mission there, which means you don't have the ability to make a, a change if you want to. It's not like you can just say, hey, I'm, I'm headed home. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just zip home real quick or I'm tired of this. You know, I'm ready to go back. Uh, you know, there's there's death, there's destruction, there's a lot of really frightening circumstances, and we just don't have a clue what they're going through. And I I never I've been to Saudi Arabia. I went on a TDY, but I didn't go there on under combat. I I went there as a we were a support mission, and so it's a completely different scenario. So I just I learned a lot. Um, the panel that I was on went really well, and I feel like. I made a difference there, and I'm going to go back and speak to another group uh, in the month of December, just a quick overnight in and out to go and speak um, at another organization that has a similar purpose. And I also want to point out that, let me give you some information here. Um, let me give you some information. I, I have some information here on some of what I share that I want to share with you. And I, this is this is the part about this whole job, about everything having to do with what's going on with our troops um, and, and the disconnect between the actual troops themselves, their commanders, their leaders, the ones who are, you know, basically giving them the orders and giving them their missions and the people here in the United States who are elected who should be really invested in this. And if there's anything that we need to take away from it all, it's because you, you might be thinking, wow, the Bring Our Troops Home event. What do I take away from it? How do I think about this? Because um, you support the United States sovereignty, you support us being in a command and control position, not letting other nations lead. But it doesn't mean we have to have boots on the ground in every theater. And my point for yesterday was, I want us to spend our treasure where it counts the most for us, which in my opinion, is now the North and South American continents. We should be spending money if we're going to nation build, if we have to nation build, if the passion for the American people is nation building, then we should be doing it in South America because those people are coming here because their nations are garbage. So they and I know they're beautiful places and the people there are wonderful. This isn't about the people. It's about the governments and the gangs that are running these countries and keeping people from actually being able to experience prosperity. We can't bring them all to America. They bring their failed ideas with them. They're beautiful people, but they bring with them the same kinds of ideas that made their countries horrible to live in. So we need to improve their countries. And when I say that, I don't like the idea of spending money outside of our country on other countries for the purpose of like remodeling their country, but we're already doing it. That's the part that we're ignoring. So here's, here's what I want you to take away from this. You got this quote. Now, you're going to wonder who said this. I, it, the quote is, I think that everybody who keeps saying, no, 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 we can't do that in the defense establishment must be made to explain what winning in those wars looks like and what the metrics are. We are now 17 years in Afghanistan and the government controls less than 60 percent 
of all the land. It doesn't have the support of all the people. Heroin trafficking is up. There are multiple terrorist groups throughout Afghanistan, lots of different problems in Afghanistan. And what seems to be the answer from the foreign policy establishment is to stay forever. So who said that? It wasn't a Republican. That's presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren. She said that to Rachel Maddow on her show just not too long ago. I found the video of that quote and I copied down what she said. She then went on to say after the end of that quote, because doesn't it sound like she wants to sit down with President Trump as a senator and talk about how they can move some legislation through the House and get, get, get it done? Doesn't it sound like that? Well, right after she said that, she said, but I don't agree with the way the president is trying to pull troops out of Syria. Everybody, please remember that the troops that were pulling out of Syria, there were 200 of them. We're not talking about thousands of people, and we're not talking about any kind of a dent in the actual budget, the spending over there. 200 troops, that's, that's a blip, and nobody wanted him to do it. Why? Because they feel like we just belong there, and we have to be there, no matter what, chicken butt. <laughs> have you ever said that with your kids? Like if your kids say, you say, no matter what, we're, we're going to go to such and so-and-so, or no matter what. We're going to, you know, in the morning when we get up, it's going to be Christmas. And then your kid says, no matter what. And then you say chicken butt. And then your kid starts laughing because anything with butt on the end makes kids laugh. We used to say that all the time. So no matter what, chicken butt, we can't leave the Middle East. That's what we're talking about here. Can, can you, can you believe it? I cannot. So then here's a quote for you. Try to figure out who said this. I want to get out. I want to bring our troops back home. I want to start rebuilding our nation. We will have, as of three months ago, spent over $7 trillion over the last 17 years, and we get nothing out of it. We have nothing but death and destruction. It's horrible. Sometimes it's time to come back home. Who said that? President Trump. He said that a few months ago. So if we can't get any Democrats to, on their own platform issue, they believe in bringing troops home. They don't believe in endless war. They don't believe in foreign entanglements. They don't believe in nation building, yet they won't sit down with the president to work on this issue. Now, I want you to, um, I want you to think this thing through for a second here. For the first time since Democrats took up their anti-war platform, we have a Republican president and at least the Senate is controlled by Republicans, where the Democrats and Republicans could actually come together and agree on drawing down from some of these foreign entanglements, bringing the troops home and spending some of the money that we were spending in the Middle East on taking care of these people because they're killing themselves. They're doing drugs. They're committing suicide. They're, they're suffering. And it's just not real because... Our troops come primarily from the South, the all volunteer force. They come from the southern part, southern states, and uh, you know a little bit from the coast. But you know we're talking North and South Carolina, that type of thing. Yes, New York and California send tens of thousands of people into the military every year. But if you look at the percentage of the people in comparison with the size of the state, New York and California are only sending large numbers because they have such huge populations, but percentage-wise, tons of their people don't come. So it's just like the analogy, um, if you read a lot about school choice and, and integration, there's a story, it's a true story about a guy who was talking at a conference, he said, well, when you have 
just an all black school. The reason we want integration is because an all black school, the parents will complain about the conditions and nothing happens. But at a white school, if parents drive up and a mom says, why are we driving on gravel? Why don't we have a paved parking lot? Within the year, that parking lot will be paved. Whether the school pays for it, whether taxpayers pay for it, whether that mom raises the money to do it among the other parents, that parking lot is getting paved. And it's the same with everything in, in school districts where, quote unquote, that's where the white moms are. And so they said if you integrate the schools, then you have the, you'll have more equality in the educational product that's being offered. And so there's there's this same kind of concept going on with the with the military. When you have just the middle class and people who are, you know, working class sending their kids into the military, meaning their kids are volunteering to go, and you don't have the children of congressmen, you don't have, you know, the children of presidents, you don't have people from the power base of this nation with their kids in the military, then the military is invisible, non-existent. And because of that, there's this amazing lack of interest in what happens to military people, what happens to their children, what happens to their their spouses. The spouses also have high incidences of, you know, the kinds of things that you see when there's a stressful relationship, their mental illness, um, suicide, threats of self-harm, and there's a high incidence of divorce and, and, you know, family breakup from these deployments. So it's not all of the military members who are suffering from this. It's the ones who are deploying and especially those who deploy multiple times. So I learned a lot. I also feel like um, there's a connection here. And you guys know, if you've been listening to this show for any amount of time, you know that I feel that all these things are interconnected. These things are not standing alone on their own. This problem over here, there's this problem over there, right? There is a connection. When you look at the amount of money we're wasting in the Middle East, because we have no clear objective there, there's nothing to win. Not even the troops believe we're there to win. The troops don't believe it. You know it's bad when people are over there, they're there to do a job, they're doing their best, that whatever they're told to do, they're killing it, but they don't feel in their hearts that they're there to accomplish an objective. If they don't feel it, then you know there's no objective, right? Because if there was one, they would feel there was one and they would feel that they were working towards it. So look at the impact of us spending money over there and not over here, not in South America. Well, you have the narco state of Mexico and many of the other South American countries are narco states, states run by narcotic traffickers. And who's most heavily impacted by that? Well, people who, the, the, whatever population group has the highest percentage living in poverty, which is the black community, 24% of black Americans live in poverty. That means that 24% of Americans who are living in poverty and can't escape their wherever they're living are most heavily impacted by illegal immigration because that's where the illegal aliens end up in their inner cities. They end up in the communities that are impoverished because they start off there and then they start businesses and start working and try to claw their way up just like everybody else. So whose jobs are they taking? Well, they're undercutting poor blacks and they, they don't need benefits. They don't, they're, they're just coming and they'll take anything. So of course, they're going to be hired. They're going to be plucked up and, and given jobs that these are the ones that Democrats say Americans won't do. It's not that Americans won't do them. It's that they're being undercut by foreign labor that's in the country illegally and isn't being held accountable with taxes, with uh, obeying the law. Even, even some of the most rudimentary basic things that we Americans pay attention to and because we know we'll get in trouble for it, we actually will be prosecuted. 
illegal aliens don't have to worry about that. So poor, disenfranchised black city residents. They're the ones most negatively impacted by the fact that we're pouring money into the Middle East. And, and so do you see that that's a huge, you got to go a long way to get there, but the connection is there. It's not like, you know, you can't see how these things connect up, how they're interrelated. And then I, I think about that group of American citizens that were in the news a couple of weeks ago. They're living down in Mexico, but they're dual citizens. And they, you know, they've, they've got this whole, you know, uh, they're living there in Mexico. Then they get caught up in, uh, you know, gang interplay, guns, you know, shooting and everything. And a bunch of them get killed. And President Trump is like, well, we'll send our military in there and we'll crush your gang problem. And what does the narco state of Mexico say? Uh, yeah, we're going to we're going to deal with our our gangs with hugs. Why? Because all the politicians in Mexico, all the governors are paid off by the, the drug dealers because that's how they can operate with impunity within the Mexican states. So. Again, President Trump offers to send the American military to assist the Mexican government in wiping out their drug lords, and they say, no, we're going to hug them. But we're spending trillions of dollars in the Middle East. Now, y'all know a long time ago, almost two years ago, I said on the air, kind of jokingly, that we should just ride into Mexico and take it over and make it the 51st state. (laughs) Just, you know, roll through all the, the, just, just go take it over, right? And of course, some people laughed and there were some interesting comments in the, the you know, live stream, but it's not an idea without merit. Now, I, I'm not saying that we actually, you know, as a joke, I was kind of kidding around when I said that, but isn't it patently clear that these South American countries are poorly run and that's why all of their citizens want to come and live here in the United States? And, but we're concerned with only the Middle East. That's where we spend the bulk of our military dollars. So the answer, of course, is, in my opinion, we bring the troops home. Not all of them. I'm not saying we just up and tomorrow yank all of our troops out. It has to be a controlled withdrawal. We have to have some kind of a strategic objective and a way of doing it that makes sense. But we do need to pull them back. And we do need to pull those dollars back. We'll never be completely out of the Middle East, but oh my goodness. Can you imagine what our country could do with seven trillion dollars first of all can you just think of the I think it's 56 or 60,000 somewhere in that neighborhood veterans that are homeless what we could do did, we don't need a trillion dollars to, to help the homeless we don't we we don't need that much money to help our homeless veterans and, and it's not that no one else is important as far as homelessness is concerned we should be dealing with all the homelessness in our country but this event was about the troops it was about veterans it was about active duty service members. And so that's where I'm the discussion is right now. And so the national coalition of homeless veterans and the United States veterans administration reports that 45% of our nation's homeless vets are black, which is crazy because black people comprise just 10.4% of the total veteran population. There are 1.4 million active duty service members and 1.4 million reservists. 17% of active duty enlisted men are black that's roughly 251,000 of the 1.4 million active duty service members. And 30% of active duty enlisted women are black 
or roughly 443,000 of the 1.4 million active duty service members. And so I just want, I want there to be something that we're discussing that actually has merit. And I know there's an impeachment drama going on right now. And I know that the Democrats are trying their hardest to undo the result of the 2016 election. But if we weren't trying to undo the results of the election, couldn't we possibly, couldn't we just maybe smidge in the scotch, sit down and have a discussion about this instead? And this is the problem. I know I've said before, when people don't do their jobs, other people die. Sometimes a person's job is so important that other people can die as a result of their dereliction of duty. And in this case, I'm talking about congressional members not doing their duty and making sure that they oversee properly what is going on with our military deployments, with with where we're sending these troops. There's a reason we need a congressional authorization to wage war in another country. One of those reasons is obviously because that's the way the founders wanted it. Another reason is because when Congress people authorize war and send our troops and our tax dollars to it, and the American people look over and say, I no longer agree with that. That's a phone line you can burn down with, you know, 100 calls a minute. That's, that's a way for you to reach out and say, I no longer support my tax dollars going in this direction. What happens when you don't have a congressional authorization is that there's no one to hold accountable. You no longer have someone to call because now all they have to say is, well, there's nothing I can do about it. There's no congressional authorization. If they talk to you at all, if they bother talking to you. Now, this is a problem that doesn't get fixed after one conference, after one speech. This is an issue that basically we have to first call attention to it. Then we have to rally Americans around it. And then we have to get people who are, quote unquote, important, people who have, you know, power to care and to operate some in some way to the benefit of this issue. So I just, it was a really difficult afternoon. Um, Some of the wives, the wife of the organizer came out and she was just, she was phenomenal. Uh, She gave a speech about what it was like for her when her husband was deployed. And then another lady came on and talked about her husband and what he was like after his deployments, what it was like for their children, um, and what it was like for her. She went through quite a lot on her own, just being, you know, basically kind of a, you know, single mom with her husband deployed over and over and over again. And what it was like when he came home and he was suicidal and, and he's, he's better now. They're on the other side of it. Uh, some of the, the panelists talked about the people they'd lost, not just people in their command who were lost, uh, you know, in, in combat, but people that they lost after everybody came home in the unit and they committed suicide. And so this is a real problem and we have Americans suffering. And I know there, there are a lot of issues that people can be concerned about. I mean, come on, we, we talk about the pro-life issue here. We talk about the impact of abortion on women after they've had the abortion. And Planned Parenthood says you should be awesome right now, but women are depressed and they're, you know, engaging in self-harm, et cetera, et cetera. We've talked about the 31 million women who are post-abortive. We've, we've, we've got a lot of, of things that we can talk about that are impactful that 
that are difficult for Americans to go through. But on this issue, I feel like it's an unnecessary one where this is, this is where if we have, if we go back to the constitutional application of what Congress does, what the responsibility is, if Congress has to authorize troops to go into a theater of war and the money, then if they don't authorize it and we say every troop that is not under a congressional authorization has to return home, boy, we'll see some stuff happen, wouldn't we? And I think it would be to the benefit of Americans. So please take the information that I've shared and make this issue something that you bring up with your congressional member, uh, your senator. Tell, let them know. I, I'm aware of the fact that we have just thousands of troops stationed abroad and they have no congressional authorization. What do you plan to do about that? Are you going to authorize them to be there? By passing a bill? Or are you going to say, we'll no longer fund this because we as Congress have control of the purse strings and we're not going to let it happen anymore? You know, the House has control of the purse strings. They don't have to fund anything. Let's see what they say. All right, so I have more show for you. (laughs) I'm going to tell you about how we spent a few hours hanging out in America's living room, the lobby of the Trump Hotel. Uh, Trump International DC and other fun stuff. So stay right there. I'm going to be back with you in just a couple of minutes. Okay. More Stacy on the right after this. Hey everybody. Welcome back to the program. We have a little bit of a timing issue if you're just tuning in. Um, but we, I, I'm, I got to say, so glad to be back at home. I do enjoy going out um, on a trip, especially since this year has been one of those years where I haven't been on very many trips. Mainly, I mean, obviously, you know, we've been through a little something over the summer, um, but I've just chosen not to go to a couple things. I had opportunity to go to a couple things, but for the most part, if I'm invited to go somewhere and they're willing to do expenses or some kind of assistance in that way to help get me there, then I'm much more likely to go. And that was the case here with this. It was, it was just made so easy for me to do weird though whenever I go to DC I always see my parents and my sister well this time my sister was in Las Vegas for work and my parents are on a cruise so I did not have anybody to pick me up at the airport girl I I was out there just flying by the seat of my pants ubering everywhere just you know so that's how we ended up after we went over to the Indian Gaming Association where they had the luncheon um Instead of going to Capitol Hill, I'm not going to lie to y'all. We didn't go to Capitol Hill. We, cause all my appointments were with staffers. My, my members were not available to speak with me. So we went to Trump international DC, Ubered over there. And of course, Don Jr. And Kimberly Guilfoyle rolled up in the, the, the spot and we had to rush over there and say hi. And then I basically photobombed, stuck my head right in between and got in the picture with Don Jr. I did get to shake his hand and say hi. Um, and it was just fun. It was, it was fun to sit there. We had some of their fantastic bacon, um, the candied bacon that they have. The other people that I was there with, they had other things that they, they tried for their appetizer. And then we went over to Harry's, which is a famous Republican spot. It's like a little diner. And uh, we went over there and I had a lobster roll for dinner and a salad. And I need the bread, y'all. 
I was good. I didn't eat the bread. Um, and then, then I went back to the hotel and I chilled out a little bit, packed my stuff up. Um, you know, just, just tried to get ready for the early morning flight. So that's the other thing I want to say. First of all, glory to God. Y'all, I had to catch a 5.30 a.m. flight last Friday to Atlanta, Georgia. And the reason that I was on the earlier flight is because, remember, that was a short notice plane ticket that I bought. And the cheapest ticket was that 5.30 a.m. flight. It was also the only one that was a direct flight. So I don't normally fly out in the morning. In fact, most of my family members, you know, extended family, they always say, oh, you guys aren't morning people. So let me tell you how good God is. I made not only made that flight, I was there on time. No big deal. The next flight back, back here from Georgia, was a 7 a.m. flight. So I still had to get up at the crack of dawn to get over to the airport because, you know, Atlanta's Hartsfield Airport is crazy big, just a ridiculously large airport. So in order to get through the TSA, you need over two hours before your flight to get there, especially if you want your luggage to go. So I didn't, I didn't need to check my luggage, but I had to on that flight because I bought such a cheap ticket that they wouldn't let me take my carry-on bag on the plane. I was only allowed one personal item. So I ended up just taking that overnight bag that I took with me. I had to check it. So I made that flight. I was not late, you guys. I was not running through the airport. It was no lunacy going on at all. So then I get back here. I'm doing my regular thing. And then remember, I was already scheduled to go to this Bring Our Troops Home event. I've known about this for about five or six weeks. So that flight was another kind of early morning deal. Um, actually, no, I'm sorry. I flew there in the afternoon. So I get on, it's like a 115, but right before I'm supposed to do the show. So that's why I told you guys I'm not doing the show that day. So on Tuesday, uh, yeah, Tuesday, I fly into there. Cause you, uh, can I just be honest with you right now? I have no idea. Oh, today's Thursday. Okay. Yeah. Today's Thursday. So Tuesday I fly there. Um, but my luggage didn't make it on the plane, even though I was to the airport on time. Church of God in Christ conference here in St. Louis. All of the attendees are at the airport at the same time on Tuesday, getting through the TSA at the same time I am. So my bag didn't make it. So I hung out at the Reagan International Airport for an extra hour and a half to wait for the next plane from St. Louis, which is where my luggage was on that plane. So then I go over to the hotel. I missed the dinner the first evening because I was supposed to be there by four so I could be to the dinner by 630. Totally missed it. Uh, So I got some sleep. And got up again, crack of dawn. I was downstairs 15 minutes early, you guys. So if you're wondering what this story is about, it's about time, time management. God gave me some time management over this past, it's been, what, seven days? I can't believe a week ago this time, I was with Candace Owens and we were doing the event, the Vitae event. And then that night I got ready for the early morning flight the next day. It's only been seven days since I met President Trump. Just think on that for a second. Let that marinate on your brain. Nice. Okay. So then on the way back, I had another early morning. Well, an 8.40 a.m. flight. You don't have to be to the Southwest Terminal at Reagan as early. You only need to be there an hour early, but they had a shuttle that they had arranged for us. And the shuttle left this morning at 6.30. Uh, He actually waited around for 15 minutes for any stragglers. So we ended up leaving at 6.45. I still ended up being there for like an hour and 20 minutes before the flight actually started boarding. You guys, I'm an early, early. I've had a whole seven days of being early to almost everything. I know you're probably thinking that a pig is going to fly through that window right there. or Something's about to happen. No, y'all, it's prayer. (laughs) 
<laughs> I actually prayed. I was like, Father, please help me not to be running late, missing flights, et cetera, especially when this organization has paid for, paid for my plane ticket. And then last week, you know, short notice, we, we bought that plane ticket. I was like, this, this had better work out because this is an outlay. Okay. This is an outlay. So that's my testimony about how God has been so awesome. Now let's quickly just run down a couple things. First of all, uh, Donald John Trump is still your president and I'm still on the, uh, board of black voices for Trump. Yeah, that's real. So there's a whole thing going on with U S citizenship and immigration services. We're going to cover this and we're going to cover a little bit of impeachment stuff, which it's a witch hunt. I, that's probably all I should say about it. Cause why give them any validity? But U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services has announced that they want to propose a new rule that would deter aliens from entering the United States illegally and from them filing these frivolous, fraudulent, and otherwise non-meritorious asylum applications in order to obtain employment authorizations. Because that's the real reason they're here is to work so they can earn money and send it back to Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, etc. The proposed rule would better allow USCIS to extend protections to those with bona fide asylum claims because there are people from South America who come here who have genuine asylum claims who should be permitted into the country. That's our laws. And whether we like that or not, that is, that's the law. If you meet the requirements, you can come into our country and you can claim asylum and you can end up living here. That's another way to get in here. So the proposed rule stems well, first of all, yeah, it, the rule stems from the April 29th, 2019 presidential memorandum on additional measures to enhance border security and restore integrity to our immigration system. Wow, that's a mouthful, which emphasizes that it is the policy of the United States to manage humanitarian immigration and the programs associated with that in a safe, orderly manner and to promptly deny benefits to those who don't qualify. Nothing in this rule changes eligibility requirements for asylum. Instead, the rule strengthens the standards that allow an alien to work on the basis of a pending asylum claim. Now, the bureaucracy spent decades undermining immigration by promulgating rules that um, actually aid illegal aliens. And President Trump is reversing that. I like it, but I actually don't like the fact that it's a rule change because a rule change can be undone by a succeeding president. But at least it's something. Um, and coming on the heels of the other ruling that they made where they actually have gotten authorization all the way through the courts to be able to have people remain in Mexico while their asylum claims are adjudicated. That means that the president is actually getting more done than what we thought he could get done because we were looking at him building a wall and he hasn't been able to do as much of that as he wants. But he has been able to have more people stay in Mexico and huge numbers of them have returned back to their home countries because they don't want to wait in Mexico. And every one of them that returns without having gotten into the United States is a walking billboard for those who are thinking of coming here. And the billboard says, don't go because it didn't work for me. So it, that is is uh, fantastic. So I want to also speaking of the impeachment and all that good jazz. The GOP polls 2020 target states on a weekly basis. We've, we've shared a few of those polls here on the show. And on Tuesday, RNC chair Rona McDaniel sent out a tweet. She was showing how internal polling from the RNC, those numbers have changed since September 24th, which is the date that Nancy Pelosi uh, was 
standing in front of a line of U.S. flags, and she was announcing the opening of the impeachment inquiry. Remember, she said, because no man is above the law. So surprisingly, McDaniel reports that in opposition to the hearing in the polls, opposition to the impeachment hearings is up by 6%. So some people who are Democrats actually see this impeachment debacle not only as an embarrassment, but as something that will ultimately cause them to lose the presidency. And so let's now, um, let's now pivot over to kind of a discussion about what's going on with, with the presidential race. The Democrats are in disarray, in my opinion, in my, in my opinion. Because you now have Michael Bloomberg talking about joining the race. Um, and I think there's a lot of speculation in, on insiders in the party. People are concerned that if they can't get some traction underneath any one of these candidates and the impeachment doesn't turn out to be what they want, that they're going to actually end up looking, well, they're going to look bad with a lot of egg on their face, but they also have no chance of stopping President Trump. I think their structural impediment is actually much worse than what they're letting on because the foundational aspects of why people would reelect a president are very good for President Trump right now. Economically, on the foreign policy front, Yes, it's embarrassing to have these horrible hearings going on, but if you already don't like President Trump, then you, you're happy about the hearings. If you like him, you think the hearings are annoying. If you're in the middle, you're looking at your bottom line and you're thinking, I, I almost don't care what he said on the phone to this guy. I may not even understand what's going on here, but I'm looking at my 401k. I'm looking at my job. I'm looking at our total income. Things are looking good which one of the Democrats is going to give us the same result? And the answer is none of them. Now, I know there are plenty of Democrats out there who look at uh, Bernie Sanders and AOC, and you're like, those are the crazies. Just like the Republicans have a couple of crazy ones, we got a couple of crazy ones. I, that's not going to stop me from voting for Democrats. But we're not talking about voting for Democrats writ large or generally speaking. We're talking about whether or not you're interested in voting for President Trump again or at least not voting against him based on the economic outlook. If a country is not a war and the economy is not a recession, the incumbent president is usually reelected. So it's really early to say, and I mentioned those things just to say, you know, please continue to pray for the president. Please continue to pray for all of our elected officials who are placed in authority over us, um, and remember, God turns the head of the leader whichever way he wants it to go. And that prayer works. It's the answer. <laughs> and I know um, unchurched people and, and a lot of people on the left who are activists, I'm not going not, to, not everybody, but some people on the left, they always get really ticked off if you say, oh, let's pray about it or oh, you should pray about it because they feel like that means you you're basically saying don't do anything about it because they don't believe in the power of prayer. But we do. And it's our duty to pray so that we can get the results that we're looking for. And yes, I'm on Black Voices for Trump, but praying for our elected leaders is a biblical mandate that we are all required to do regardless of our political affiliation. Just like we prayed for President Obama, we prayed that the Lord would rein him in and et cetera, et cetera. We got to pray for President Trump. 
And so that's that's what I'm going to leave it on. Um, I'm so glad I was able to to get with you guys. Huge thanks to Noah Chalaya, who swooped in. He was just like in the right place at the right time just a few minutes ago. And I was trying to figure out what was going on with our, the computer here. And so we were able to get the show up and running. And I'm just so glad I was able to be with you. And I will be here at the regular time tomorrow, Friday. And we'll be talking more politics. I'll have audio for you, um, some some different clips and things like that to round out the week. And we'll just cover everything, anything that I've missed and everything extra. Then that'll be tomorrow on the show. Um, but until then, God bless. Have a fantastic evening. And uh, don't forget to pray for all of those folks, those political folks, everybody. All right. Have a great night.